Hello, everybody. <laughs> Turn this up in our headphones, Charles. Oh, okay. Turning it up. <laughs> hello, 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 everybody, one and all. Welcome to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today, as always, is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friends, Charles. That's right. We're saying friends today because we have the honor, the privilege of having a very special guest on today. You may know him from his many historical fiction books, including the Tyrant series. You may know him from his fantasy books, like the Trader Sun Cycle. Or you may know him from the highly anticipated science fiction book coming out soon, Artifact Space, the prolific author Christian Cameron. Christian, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, it's great to be here. <laughs> and I, I think I should clarify, many people in the fantasy world know me as Miles. So I am mm -hmm. also Miles Cameron. That is saying. right. My, yes, the fantasy and sci-fi books are written under the name Miles Cameron. And that is very true. And then on on Twitter, your name is Christian and Miles too, right? So yeah. you're, you are yeah. both. Well, uh, it, it wasn't ever my choice to have two personalities. Uh, it seems the publishing industry wanted it that way. And mm. literally as recently as about two months ago, a, uh, a, a reader of my historical fiction said, had I ever read any Miles Cameron because he thought I'd like it. <laughs> you know, he was spot on though. That's a good review. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, awesome. And when I informed him that I was Miles Cameron, there was one of those like weird pauses on Facebook Messenger where you know a person is staring <laughs> off. <laughs> just processing what they're going through right now. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> just fusing those two people in their head. <laughs> oh, oh, God. We're honored to have we're honored to have every personality of yours on today, Christian. I, I this is really a dream come true for me and Charles. You are too kind. Yeah, this is the first time we've ever had someone on whose work we've just had on our shelves before ever recording an episode of the show. So this is like for us a, a big breakthrough. And so we're super, super thrilled to have well, you. May it be the first of many. Oh, well, thank you, oh, Christian. That's that. That's very kind. <laughs> D Dylan, before we get too far into it, you had you had a really nice way to introduce uh, to introduce Christian. I think we should say that now. So because it segues so beautifully into some of our first questions here. Oh, yes. Well, Cr Christian, as you all get to know, is a man of many interests and passions. He's just, uh, you know, once he gets talking, you want him to never stop because he's got so many interesting <laughs> things to say and so many things he does. And we're excited to hear all of it. And I was thinking how to describe you, Christian. You do all these amazing writing fighting videos. We'll get into that uh, where you show us how to uh, fight with us medieval stuff. And I was like, uh, you're a Renaissance man in medieval armor is how I think of you, Christian. <laughs> oh, that's that's really good. I, I I have to say that I may use that as my Twitter shout line. <laughs> Please do. Yes. That would be a breakthrough. When Dylan said that to me this morning, I was like, yes, yes, yeah, exactly. Wow, I, I like that. Yeah. So, aside from aside from its lack of feminism, uh, <laughs> the term Renaissance man has got to appeal to almost everyone. Like 
Yes, mm -hmm. I'd like to be a Renaissance man. That has to be a good thing. Until oh, you study yeah. the Renaissance in detail and you go like, yes, I want to burn witches and make sure that <laughs> the Roman Catholic Church is in charge of everything. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't see you as holding funny. those aspects of Renaissance, <laughs> but what, what, I do, yes. What, what I'm trying to say is, Dylan, uh, if, if we were to go head to head on this, I would say that most of the mm -hmm. things that people ascribe to the Renaissance actually belong in the Middle Ages because the Renaissance was huh. a terrible time. <laughs> That's interesting. Ah, well, there you well, go. All my, all my uh, learning in school. You aren't a historical school. fiction, so <laughs> I'll trust you. <laughs> That's I'm, right. I'm ready to go. No. Uh, okay. <laughs> Ask me anything. <laughs> so ask you anything, Christian. Well, I mean, we just had like, what was it? Hour, hour and a half discussion, just meeting each other and just enjoying everything. So it feels like we've, we've already covered so much ground, but we only just exactly. started recording. So is this where you just go like, wow, it's been really fun, Christian. And, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> guys, you should have been there. It was great. But yeah, that now we're now that's time. No, we, we still have we didn't even get to ask any of our questions. So that's how that's how much we, we still have to go. So it's, we've just had so much fun talking to you. And we say Renaissance man. And even to say like in medieval armor sells you a bit short because you have all yes. kinds of different backgrounds in reenacting. And it's not just medieval and it, so many things we wanted to get into. First, let, let's just get into it because we've been dancing around it so much. And that is your your passion for, I guess, reenacting medieval combat and even like as far as like going into gunpowder and firearms and things like that. So I guess let's start with um, how did you like how does how does one get into this kind of I call, call it a hobby, but I guess this passion of reenacting and getting your own armor and learning sword fighting techniques because there can't be too many people that are passing that information down. So how do you get into it and how do you get historically accurate with all these details? How, do, how does this start? So I'm going to start with my dad. Uh, mm. My dad was a writer and a theater tech person. Uh, he wrote a bunch of textbooks that are still being used in drama history. And uh, my dad wow. approached everything he did basically like a method actor. So um, my childhood was spent watching my dad build uh, an antique style guns. And we made our own black powder and we made our own fireworks because he was writing a book on medieval firearms. And he built all kinds of stuff. He was very interested in costume and clothes, mm. and he was constantly building costume and clothes. Mm. It was all around me. There was no escaping from it. And I think that that played a major role. Um, and then uh, when I was a teenager, the American Bicentennial happened. Mm. I don't know if you okay. remember, uh, possibly no. remembering is wrong, but maybe you've heard tell. <laughs> uh, but uh, 1976, uh, and it was, um, it was odd. I mean, uh, I could I could say things, some very modern things about America's approach to itself in 1976. Mm. <laughs> but I'll just say, like, everybody was very interested in sort of recreating the American Revolution. And I lived in Massachusetts. Every mm. town in Massachusetts huh. had a, a militia group. And the word militia didn't mean anything bad back then. Mm. Um, uh, <laughs> so they had some 18th century reenactors, even if they were in crappy polyester clothes and, you know, <laughs> had incorrect guns didn't matter um and i sort of i mean i belonged to a boy scout group but i spent my mm -hmm. what more most kids would be would have thought of as their boy or girl scout time uh traveling around the northeastern united states 
recreating mm. the American Revolution. Wow. Um, huh. And uh, one of the most valuable lessons there was at some point I changed sides and started playing a British soldier, uh-huh. uh, mostly because I'd come well, to Benedict Arnold move. <laughs> how, well, no, it, it was more about how you couldn't actually have a reenactment without the other side. Hmm. And then once you've made that commitment, because you know, the clothes you wear really do reflect you. So you start learning about the other side and then you start realizing how little you understand how the other side saw things. And it, right. huh. it's a little scary. It's kind of like one, <laughs> yeah. one morning you wake up and go like, what if the British were completely right about everything they thought yes. about the American Revolution? And, right. yeah. I, you know, there were a lot of books. It was a very interesting time, right? It's really the 70s. Forget the Bicentennial. So there were lots of counterculture books and there were books basically Hmm. saying like, "Hmm, maybe the British had a point of view or uh, the mistreatment of loyalists was like as bad as almost any set of refugees being, you know, like all these things. Mm -hmm. And I started reading them and going, so history does not work in the linear (laughs) manner that I had been led to (laughs) by sixth grade history teachers. True. Um, (laughs) Imagine that. It's complicated and has many sides. And, you know, uh, Right now, we we live in the world in a world of fifty different new quote unquote new flavors of history. We're looking at the lives of slaves, the lives of women, the 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 mm. way various countries were shaped by people who have been marginalized ever since. And yeah. honestly, that started in the seventies. That whole movement, hmm. it's not brand new to our generation. Um, and that really fired me up for history. And I remain fired up to yeah. now. Um, and also learning that things, you know how we, we're now talking about systemic racism. Mm-hmm, yeah. And the fascinating thing to me about the phrase systemic racism is that if you really get into history, you realize everything is a system, including yes. racism. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, it, you know, it's got cultural artifacts, but it's also got, if I say reasons, that makes it sound like I think it's a good thing. It's not a good thing, <laughs> right. but it doesn't happen for no reason. Mm-hmm. So it's you look got... at the economic underpinnings of slavery going right back to the Middle Ages. You look at the uh, economic underpinnings of the medieval fur trade and how much they created the treatment of First Nations peoples in America. And yet those mm-hmm. terrible cultural practices, they'd already been invented before a single First Nations person had been met. They were invented mm-hmm. dealing with Slavs in Russia. Um, getting the fur out of out of Russia and the East long before. So all this baggage the right. Europeans brought with them. Yes. And these are systems. And understanding yes. the systems, quite frankly, helps you write a better fantasy novel. Because <laughs> that, uh, systems are yeah. complicated and people end up going to war or whatever. And they think it's for reason X. Actually, it's for, for, for reason Y. Right. And Dylan, you were telling me before we started about your fantasy novel. And it <laughs> seems to me like you were literally telling me about the systems that underlie a situation. Um, and you were talking about person-to-person systems, but like, right. I really love that stuff. And I really love understanding that stuff. And it sounds to me like you do too. Yes, I love it. And I can hear you just saying it too, because it's like, uh, you know, I'm into psychology. So I think about what, how the people adapt their stories and adapt the way that they behave to a system that tells them the rules. And you know, hearing you talk about things like taking the British perspective in revolutionary war type thinking, it's like uh, you it helps you develop empathy and perspective and things like that that I'm sure are super helpful for just point of view in writing, where it's like 
you have to believe that everyone's the hero of their own story and thinks they're doing what's right. Cause I, I mean, that's my sense is most people have that way of thinking and, and that's going to show up in, in your writing when you've had experiences like that, Christian. And I had a really tell. good teacher who used to say most of the great evils perpetrated in the world were perpetrated by people who were sure they were doing good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That, that's well said. And it's, it's really interesting to see like all these things that you've learned and experienced through reenactments and through your own education. And then to talk about how they translate into influence for your writing. We had a very long conversation as, as we keep alluding to about <laughs> influences for writing. And so I guess one of the things I want to ask you while we're on the air, Christian, is how do you take these like, oh, like I'm thinking about the British side now. That's very interesting. And I'm learning how, you know, a musket works and how to load it and how warfare worked in this time. How does that eventually become into an inspiration for a novel? And how does that affect your writing process and your just your voice as an author? So it's a learning process. I know that sounds like a cop out, but um, <laughs> I don't recommend it. But I wrote a book a long time ago called Washington and Caesar about uh, black mm. loyalists in the American Revolution. Because I was totally fascinated to discover mm. that lots and lots of escaped slaves, including some who escaped from George Washington's plantations, ran away and joined the British Army to be free, which is not a story that anyone tells mm. you about the American Revolution. And, uh, and, and it's not in Hamilton either. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I loved writing Washington and Caesar, and I was very passionate about what I'd learned, but I did a terrible job uh, because <laughs> I... I so desperately wanted to hmm. tell you how everything worked that I didn't write a good book. Um, hmm. And that is a way of approaching that. Like, this is how you light a fire. This is how you swing a sword. This is how the ranks of the British uh, army worked. Hmm. This is what being a, a plantation slave was actually like, because I love doing research. So I ran around and studied all these things. And I read every letter George Washington wrote so that I would get his voice wow. right. Yeah. And, you know, Turns out that's not really what you're supposed to do as a writer. You're supposed to write great characters and have a great story. And then if you can make it feel authentic, that's like a bonus. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make you laugh, but uh, I went about it the other way. I tried to write the most authentic tale of the American Revolution in history. Hmm. And in the process of the authenticity, I bored a lot of readers. Hmm. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that was a good learning experience. And I got a really bad it wasn't that bad, actually, but a really harsh critical review from the Cleveland Plain Dealer, where the, uh. the reviewer had obviously read and even enjoyed my book. And he said, yeah. I hope this author continues writing, and I hope he learns that I don't need to be told three times how to light a pipe in the 18th century. Huh. Wow. And, hmm. and I was like, burn. I, I get that, because <laughs> I definitely told you that three times in the course wow. of I An actual constructive no. criticism. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, it, and you learn from it. You actually it, it took it in like with a receptiveness. It was one of my favorite reviews of all time, and I really took yeah. that on board. And I know this is a long answer to your question, Charles, but like, <laughs> so walking away from answers. that book, I was like, right, I love to research. I want to know how it all works. But now I've got to find a voice to tell people how it works without annoying them, boring them. So, um, and Oddly, about that time, this is probably too much information, I was reading Christopher Tolkien's 10 books mm. on how the Lord of the Rings were written. Yeah. And um, 
I like to brag that everything I know about writing, I got from those 10 books because I never <laughs> took a writing class in university. Mm -hmm. um, at, and I, I have other comments to make, but I'll say that somewhere in there, I realized that you could do, that good writing was doing three or four things at once in a scene. And I know this is banal, but I hadn't realized mm -hmm. that before. Oh. So like, it's not enough to, if I want to tell you how to light Aragorn's pipe, <laughs> Maybe I also want to use it as a scene to expose that Frodo doesn't yet understand how powerful the ring is. And maybe I also want it to be a little bit of a party scene so you can enjoy being in an inn. Yes. Mm -hmm. And maybe I also want to lead it, have it be a lead in to the nine writers attacking the inn in Brie. And I'm going to pack all that into one scene. <laughs> now you're not going to be bugged that I slipped in how to light a pipe. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. so And Christian, funny. I, yeah. So I see you we're reading artifact space now and I didn't read too much. I used all of my gratification delay skills I have, which I'll let others speculate on how much that is to only read like the first 10, 15% of it so far. And I'm freaking loving it. It's so good. And something I see you doing is taking more, you, you mentioned this idea of like you were trying to teach in your early writing. And I feel like I see you taking more of a learner's approach um, in this one, like putting us in the perspective of someone learning. And you have this, this young protagonist who is in a new scenario. And this way I see you doing the like two things I want is we're getting to know the characters. So, and Nabar, I'm, I'm loving Nabar. Am I saying uh, yeah. her name right Nabarro in Barrow in Barrow I'm loving in Barrow so much and just seeing her in this new environment learning about these new things and I, I'm someone who's been uh, at times a little resting about getting into more sci-fi and I've heard you call artifact space uh, space opera as well um, and I I see how you're grounding this in in character and characters learning in new scenarios, rather than trying to teach about technology, you're putting us in character learning about it with her. And that's part of what I think is like the, the genius that I'm seeing from Artifact Space is uh, that, that it feels like we're getting the sci-fi experience, but it's grounded in character. And I'm just, I'm loving that. And I see you doing that like multiple things at once with each scene. That Well, I appreciate that, Dylan, because that is what I'm trying to do. Because I think that it. good science fiction, I know I'm about to lose 50 readers. <laughs> I think that good science fiction, good historical fiction, and good fantasy all have the same basis, which is world building. Um, mm. the, the reader doesn't want to be bored with world building, but the reader wants to feel that there are secure underpinnings that make sense. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then what you never want to do is cause them to have to snap out of suspension of disbelief and go, wait a minute, you told us yeah. that X always happened. And now all of a sudden for the party's convenience, X doesn't happen. Why is that? That, that, huh. so, so like consistency, solid underpinnings, you know, where you're going. And, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever read any Patrick O'Brien or heard of Patrick O'Brien one of the greatest historical novelists mm. of all time. Um, huh. Master and Commander was a movie a few years ago. Anyway, oh, yeah. I'm old. Mm. Uh, but uh, Patrick O'Brien had two main, two protagonists through 15 books. And one is a brilliant fighter. And the other is a doctor who he's never even been to sea before and doesn't understand anything. But he's like an enlightenment guy, like a Renaissance man. <laughs> and so... 
He yeah. wants to understand everything. So he's constantly yeah. questioning absolute from legal <laughs> tactics to how pulleys work. And <laughs> mm. years ago, when I read my first one, I'm like, oh, this is brilliant because <laughs> he's not a child. He's smart. He's not an action hero because we already have one of those. Right. He's, he's yeah. there to keep the reader up to date right. on where we are and what's happening. <laughs> to keep him um, informed. That's not really fair because he's a brilliant character. And in some re- ways, he's the, the, the best character in the series. But um, mm. it's a really, yeah, I, 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 I thank you, Dylan, but I didn't invent it. <laughs> no, you can see it. Well, you're mastering it. <laughs> yeah, you can see it. I get the sense too when I, you know, I've you, like Dylan had mentioned, we've cracked the cover on artifact space. We're about fifteen percent in so far, and I can already get the sense of kind of your knowledge and experience of military life because yes, this is a fantastical space opera story, and they're driving like these giant ships through galaxies <laughs> and things like that. But just the idea of speaking to your commanding officer or radio chatter or going from a simulation to flying the real thing and what that's like couched in this character who I don't want to get into the plot, but you know, she's going through her own internal struggles as well and how it fits into this system that she's a part of. And it's this idea of you're educating us on a certain thing that you're passionate about without making it just about telling us that it's, it's breathed into this world. And I can see your, your influences and your interest in, in like the military that that have translated into artifact space Mm. and yet it wasn't meant to be military science fiction like Mm. uh Mm -hmm. you know you guys are 15 percent in and i'm not here to spoiler but they're really (laughs) there for trade it's it's all about trade they're merchants Mm. and you know excitingly throughout history and i'm sorry but i'm a huge history nerd uh whether (laughs) yes whether it's venice and genoa or the vikings or the people we call pirates in the 17th century, first and foremost, all those people were merchants. They bought and sold stuff. Hmm. Sometimes they stole it. And, um, uh, you know, international trade remains the underpinning of uh, world economy. And I, I mean, you know, I'm hoping you'll eventually ask me how I came to write this book, but uh, (laughs) we'll get (laughs) there. When I had been reading about the Venetian great ships the, the huge galleys that underpinned the Venetian trade. And I was just fascinated that like in 1400, these ships were going to Alexandria, Egypt, and to London, mm. England, and to Bruges, carrying all yeah. this stuff. And, you know, this is before they really, they have some inkling of the new world, but it's really before we were, you know, the North America was part of it. These are mm-hmm. long range and these ships would go out one year and come back the next year. So everybody's away for a really long yeah. time and they'd have to fight because there were always pirates. So like just ah. getting your cargo to Egypt and back is like a huge adventure all the way. Yeah. And I, I thought like, uh, again, I don't know if you guys have read Merchanter's Luck by CJ Sherry, sort of classic no. golden age sci-fi. Um, huh. But uh, those are the books I adored when I was in the Navy and they, they huh. weren't about like, you know, the killer elite, these are merchants just trying to make a dime, just trying to get their cargo of electronics parts, you know, three space stations down. And um, like, you do what you got to do. And that may occasionally, yeah. you know, involve some skullduggery on the docking side. <laughs> right. I, I like that. Mm. Um, yeah. Anyway, no, that's true. 
Yeah, so we'd be looking forward to reading more of that. So tell us more about the influences that went into writing Artifact Space and and as you so graciously hinted at uh, how you got around (laughs) to actually writing this novel. I got to say, Christian's been a fantastic, a fantastic interviewee. Not only is he so generous with his information and his knowledge, now he's given us the questions too. I love this. (laughs) (laughs) He does it all. He does it all. I don't sound like a very nice person put that way, but... Okay. So no, no we love it. We love it. We're uh, yeah, we're so happy. <laughs> four years ago, I was at the Lonsfest, and I was fanboying on one of my favorite current authors, Alistair Reynolds. And mm. Alistair Reynolds, and I'm bold. If you haven't figured that out, I saw that yes. nobody was to sit next to Alistair Reynolds, and I just <laughs> went and down next to him and yes. was like, "Hi, I've read every word you've ever written." Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, a man of my own heart, Christian. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> and and that went really well because Jill Redfern, who's my editor and also Alistair Reynolds' mm. editor, leaned over and said, uh, Alistair, he was on aircraft carriers. So it turns out Alistair Reynolds has this abiding, like, thorough interest, nay, passion for aircraft carriers. Huh? Mm. And uh, so we then talked for two hours during other people's panels, which probably wasn't very nice, about aircraft carriers. <laughs> and finally, Alistair Reynolds said to little old me, like, you should write a science fiction novel about, El- you know, like, <laughs> aircraft carriers are probably the closest human beings have come to a big spaceship. You you should, like, yeah. give this a try. And Jill Redfern leaned over again. And you can see the words, I'll buy that, are key words for every writer everywhere. Right? Like, <laughs> right. kind of go like, ah. Three magic words. <laughs> that's That's super important. Um, uh, and then, uh, the transformative experience. And I just shelved that away because I had masters and majors to write and mm-hmm. other things, books under contract. Uh, I just filed it away. And then, um, like I said, I was reading this great book on the Venetian and Florentine great galleys and their long distance trade. And that was super interesting. And then I went with my family to see a movie called Little Women. Mm-hmm. Now, I yeah. grew up on old books, so I read Little Women, I think, once as a teenager and again in my 20s, like on purpose mm-hmm. of my own free will, leaving out maybe I read it again for a class. Um, yep. So I've been through it a couple of times. And uh, contrary to popular opinion, I thought the movie was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But there's a scene in which Amy um, is in Paris dressed in fabulously correct uh, costume because I like nice. clothes. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, her her bow, not really her bow yet. Says so, um, you know, you're a great artist, and she looks at him and says, "No, I'm not a great artist." And you know what that means? That means that all I have left to me is to marry somebody rich, because that's how it goes mm. <laughs> for an upper middle class white girl in 1860. <laughs> and I mean, that's basically your speech, and it's a very feminist yeah. speech of mm. like this realization that the walls have now closed in because she's not going to be a great artist. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why that speech the whole character of Marka and Barrow. But in that moment, huh. I was like, so it's it's 800 years in the future and maybe women have other choices. Right. Um, I, yeah. uh, I'm putting and, the watchful um, woman in my to-do it, list. It's right? very good. I saw it as well. Yeah. I like uh, it. One, one of my shout lines is Amy in space. <laughs> um, That's awesome. <laughs> okay. Yes. I love it. And, uh, yeah. You know, last, last, uh, last weekend I did an interview for Sci-Fi Saturday Night, which is a program I've listened to from time to time. And um, they said uh, they had come up with a shout line, which was little orphan Annie joins the merchant space Marine. 
<laughs> I love it. <laughs> I was like, I love it. I'd buy that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. Uh, that, that, so you guys have given me a shout line. They've given me a shout line. Actually, all my interviewers are smarter than I am. <laughs> no. <laughs> hey, you do. Absolutely. Ideas are cheap. You did all the legwork. You wrote the thing. <laughs> but the thing that, the thing that really is different about artifact space to me as the writer, mm-hmm. um, I've had this happen one other time on a historical novel about ancient Greece is that Mm -hmm. in that moment, like when I walked out of that movie theater, the whole book was there. Hmm. Um, Wow. A meta plot that I will not mention because it's a spoiler all by itself. Sure. (laughs) The character arc of the main character, her best friend, Thea Drake, her character, Mm. how they were going to interact and what that was going to mean about the two of Mm. them. Um, uh, Why? Like everything from the fact that there would be a neutered gender or a a non-gendered gender um, yeah. and how science fiction wise that might come yeah. to be because space stations have limited um, air and water. And so maybe people need workers, but they don't want them to be able to reproduce freely, like in, mm. in a particularly nasty future. Mm-hmm. And then when uh. things get better, nobody wants to just be rid of them. And so there you are with a sort of third gender. Um, Yeah. And like all of that, literally it all was being right there. And I can't explain it except (laughs) to say that uh, a long time ago, a ballet teacher of mine said that she felt that art made art and that when you see Mm. good art, it improves your own art, even if it's a completely different art. Hmm. And uh, something about that movie reached right in, dropped a whole (laughs) load of, uh, of neuron exchanges and and you know yes. went away just leaving me with a book that's so, so interesting it's amazing i'm like so what do you do when that moment of inspiration strikes are you like i gotta go write an outline i yeah. know you're kind of like yeah what what do you do next yeah. sit down and start writing so um uh like like i may have mentioned to you guys before uh before five years ago i didn't write anything down uh and jill mm-hmm. redfern would tell you that i should have because I would sometimes forget the names of important characters in my own books. Uh, and I just make actually changed them. Leave it to my editor to find what charming change had happened. Right. That aside, uh, I have a pretty good memory, but uh, about five years ago, I started writing everything down. So I, I think I wrote some notes on my phone within 15 minutes of coming out of the theater. Wow. And then mm-hmm. the next day, we were somewhere... See, it wasn't quite COVID yet. Yeah, right. COVID was being talked about, but nothing was closed. We were somewhere, and in my backpack, I found my the little journals I keep when we're on vacation. And I popped one open and wrote this huge long. I've got it so that when I win a Hugo, (laughs) I can like flourish it. Yes, Um, yes. Okay, I do not really expect to win a Hugo. That was meant to be (laughs) funny. You have my i. Uh, I don't have a vote, but if you did, but if I did, Christian. Uh, anyway, I wrote a huge long thing, which was very helpful. And all that stuff people say about writing things out longhand really makes sense to me because everything I wrote out, I remembered. Anyway, so yeah. then a couple of days later, I thought, ah, screw it. All I could think about was this book. And I stopped writing the thing I was on yeah. and started writing Artifact Space. And 46 writing days later, it was done. Wow. 
Wow. So you really just, from the moment you started writing it, you just chased the idea. You just couldn't get out of your mind. You wrote the whole thing in like 50, under 50 days? Yeah. Wow. And this is this is over 500 pages, if I'm accurate. Yeah, I right? think it's 120,000 words, 125,000 words, somewhere like that. Wow. That's so incredible. what, yeah, I've been wondering this, Christian, because you do so many interesting things things you've got so many passions you're talking about ballet and then writing books in 40 the 500 plus page books in 40 some odd days and uh, watching little women i was cast up what like what is a day in the life for christian cameron or is that too hard to put the, your finger on because you do <laughs> depends so many on the day <laughs> yeah um well on a good day uh i get up at 6 30 i'm mm-hmm. at work by nine o'clock there's a whole bunch of like you know, I have a family in life. So like, I, it's yeah. not like, boom, off I go to work, uh, get to work by nine o'clock, uh, stop working at two, um, make my writing fighting video, you know, <laughs> yes. for the next day. Uh, yes. and that's sort of the COVID schedule. So reenacting really has its own schedule. Like I was going to say, we don't do it in the winter, but we do sometimes. And that's really cold. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, we, we make the schedule a year in advance and by the way, COVID has train wrecked that. So Uh, I couldn't tell you what the schedule is going to be, but, uh, we used to make the schedule a year in advance, sometimes two years in advance because, you know, my group went to Italy to be in a big Mm. event in Italy. That's a two year planning thing. People have to save their money and stuff. Gotcha. Um, Yeah. So that provides like a, a sort of uber structure that's the meta plot the meta plot to my <laughs> right. life is the reenacting schedule right. um, the other big part besides reenacting of my writing is travel yeah. mm. and yes. I, you know like it, it's extremely inspiring to me sometimes like almost overpoweringly inspiring to go places and see things and i love yes. new things like i love to see new things i loved africa when i was there I, like um so by the way so COVID is really bad for me because I can't yeah, reenact or travel. Yeah, I know. Sure. I know. I was um, thinking that. I was like, oh, no. I've noticed a yeah. few other people. And I want to hear your rhino places. charging at you story at some yeah. point, Christian, not to interrupt, uh, but that's, uh, sure. let's put a pin in that sure. <laughs> and but, you can keep going. <laughs> uh, long story short, like those things need to be planned out in advance, but I, I'm lucky I write fast enough that yeah. I can get my work done between nine and two. And I write five days a week. And when I'm burning with like with artifact space, I wrote a lot of Saturdays and even some Sundays. Mm. And that really almost never happens. Yeah. And five books you wrote in the last year. Is that accurate, Christian? Yep. Wow. So and they're all gonna get published. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. uh, Against all gods is being held. Um, like against all gods, I think people will love. uh, (laughs) Um, because it's sort of like a fantasy novel. But from the, it's hard to explain. It's very modern, and it's partially about the possibility of pacifism existing in a fantasy environment, mm-hmm. and Imagine. some other. We I mean, and it that. has good sword fights, and it has, it, it's epic, but it's trying to spin some different moralities and ideas into epic. Yeah. Um, I think, that's and great. Uh, you know, I wrote that last year, and I think if I can put words in Golanza's mouth that they're confident enough in artifact space that they wanted to just have artifact space come out by itself this year and mm-hmm. against all gods gets its own year next year. Sure. 
Um, so that's a thing. Uh, I wrote uh, two historical novels, um, book five of the Chivalry nice. series, which is out next month. Just going to give it my plug. Called yes. Hawkwood Sword. Uh, uh, the first new Tom Swan in four years. Tom Swan has its own fan base. It's like it exists separately from me. Um, <laughs> you need uh, a third name now. Uh, <laughs> no, no but it's, it's just funny because a lot of Tom Swan readers do not carry over. They don't read. Huh, right. and, and that's fine. That, that's great. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I wrote a whole Tom Swan novel instead of the usual serial. Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, and I have a free novel on my website. There you go. Oh, definitely got to go check, check that out. out and right? what's your website again? It's Christian, uh, Christian Cameron, Cameron author. author. Yeah. Christian, yeah, Christian Cameron author. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, Shadow War is uh, actually written to support Joe McLaughlin. Uh, Joe McLaughlin's um, <sighs> Rangers of Shadow Deep game. Okay. I've never written a novel mm. based on a game before. And the whole novel is literally actually based on games, real games that actually happen. Wow. And cool. uh, it's not quite done. I think it's on page 280. The games are all played out and I have the notes and I just have to go back and write the rest. But awesome. that was a COVID project to try and yeah. keep people entertained in COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I actually wrote another novel uh, for Authors Without Borders uh, called The Flight of the Raven. Mm. That's a, a Greek historical novel. And it turns out now Orion has bought that. So I guess I could claim I wrote six novels last year. Wow. <laughs> As if That's five awesome. wasn't enough. <laughs> That's awesome. Very Christian, cool. so you, I, how many books have you written across your career now? Did you mention like 43 or something like that? I think Artifact Space is book 43. That's awesome. And have you wow. always, have you always, I mean, with that, I'm, I'm sure like once you've put in the reps, right, you can start to get these <laughs> high cranking out all these, all these novels. Was that always the case? Were you always a, I'm going to use the word prolific uh, writer throughout your career? No. And uh, that's kind of weird. I wrote my spy novels with my dad mm-hmm. and uh, we wrote together one book a year. So I was writing 50,000 mm. words to 60,000 words a year. And sometimes it was like pulling teeth. <laughs> and I thought that was a full-time job. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then things and, changed. Well, my dad my dad had many little sayings about writing. And this one may annoy some people. But it was that um, writer's block can usually be banished by poverty. <laughs> mm. um, driven from need yeah to, right when you have to do it suddenly the writer's block doesn't seem like such a big problem anyway. yeah and you know two things i'll say about my own experience of writer's block it are uh yeah when you've got big royalties coming in it can be a different experience to push yourself to write mm-hmm. um mm. but that leads to the second part which to me is the truest part which is often with me at least because I do know that every writer's experience is a different experience. Sure. But with mm-hmm. me, writer's block is usually an interference with passion. And we were talking before mm. about passion in writing. Yeah. And um, that usually means that my subconscious has recognized that something is wrong with this book. Mm. That's I buy that. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, uh, I'm, I'm a very confident writer. I don't worry too much. But... My subconscious apparently keeps track of that for me. It's like my inner fake mm-hmm. and says yeah. like, yeah. yeah, hey, confident guy, you are not doing a good job here. This character <laughs> is off the tracks or whatever. Right. 
And uh, and so writer's block is usually like a little alarm going, hey, hey, you're so, lying. That's not what you wanted to have happen. So, so how yes. do you, when you hit those moments, how do you... You recognize, okay, I've I've got this writer block. My subconscious is telling me that I'm not doing something right here. How do I fix it? So, uh, I I I I have a system. Every day, right. I go to my coffee mm-hmm. shop. I sit down with my croissant and my yeah coffee, and I read everything I wrote yesterday. Mm. And about every hundred pages, I read everything. I just go all the way back to the beginning. And I lightly edit as I go. And sometimes it gets quite heavily edited. Sometimes I go like, no, that's not what I meant. Or uh, in the huh. book I'm writing right now, I, I came to a realization that I had literally forgotten one of the story arcs. It isn't a vital story arc, hmm. but uh, Dylan was saying earlier that every person is the hero in their own novel. And that is an essential <laughs> idea to me. So I realized that I had allowed one of the characters to like pale just not fulfill. Um, And so I started really rewriting that character. And in Mm -hmm. the process, I made some, you know, noticeable changes, probably five, 8,000 words of change in the novel. So that is all to lead up to when I get that feeling, I just go back, read the whole thing. And usually, in fact, I'm going to say all this, I have never, quote unquote, failed. So Always at some point, I go, there we go. I do not like that. You get there. That's yeah. awesome. And then and once it, I, I, I'm a very, uh, I'm, I'm using a term from a professor of mine about poetry, but I'm a very assembly related writer. Like, yeah, there's nothing that can't be picked up, moved, cut, pasted. Um, yeah. I'm not wedded to any of it. So, mm. so when I, when I isolate the thing that I didn't like, and sometimes my, my dad, I'm sorry to be very heavy on my dad, but my dad used to say <laughs> most problems in a book can be solved in 20 lines. And um, 20 lines? this is something that when I, yeah. when I talk to, to newer authors, it is incredibly true. It's not always true. Sometimes it's a 10,000 word change, but you should always try the 20 line change before you commit <laughs> to like, yeah. um, and yeah. uh Work smarter, not harder. Yeah. yeah. And and often, for instance, I find that I've just trapped a character into a point of view or a situation that didn't work. And if I had just not trapped them, I'd have left mm. another option open. And then we could be back to flow, back to just moving right. along. Mm. Um, and that's a 20-line change. That's excellent. Yeah. That's well, I, I imagine, too, you talk about this kind of subconscious process and all that. And I imagine if you have that ability to get in touch with, like, even if you don't know what it is, something's off, uh, then you also probably have the ability to realize when you're not there anymore and something's back aligned. And I, I imagine that ability, that willingness to make the changes and to try 20 lines, to try, I don't know what the other amount you said, like 10,000 words or whatever, to try all of that until you get that feeling of alignment, I imagine that is just a huge, huge part of what's been such a successful and incredible rank career that you're continuing on a journey of that I'm like, it's so cool to see. I think it is, but I'm going to tell you a, a, to me, hilarious factoid about this, which is sure um, the the last William Gold novel, the, the one before the one that's coming out this summer, is called Sword of Justice. And it was a super hard book to write 
because I really believe in history. So I try not to alter my mm -hmm. history. So I was stuck with a pretty complicated historical frame. And I swear every day I had the sinking feeling that I was writing a terrible book and huh. I couldn't really fix it because the history is anyway, hard. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Peter Noble reads most of my books uh, as an audible reader. Okay. Um, and I really love his voice. So I decided mm. I would listen to Sword of Justice. And I was listening to it the other day going, how did this come out so well? <laughs> I remember it huh. as an endless torture test. Like gotcha. uh, when I was done with the book, I was deeply unsatisfied with it. <laughs> and listening to it from Peter Noble, instead of sounding terrible, it actually sounds like real life, which is nonlinear and complicated. Yeah. Right. And I was like, oh, oh, and there's a lot of psychological. Sorry, a lot of it is psychological. And instead of sounding yeah. choppy, it sounds like the real confusion facing a real person. Amazing. And I'm like, oh, well. <laughs> Talk about your unintended consequences. So I, I guess what I'm trying to yeah. say is I still have a lot to learn about system. Like I have a system, but clearly uh, there's other things that go on inside the writer's head um, that, you know, anyway. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I, another one of my friends says the magic of writing is knowing when to stop fiddling. It's not so much <laughs> how you fiddle. It's knowing when to stop. Mm. And, and that is also true. So I'm going to guess that yeah. somehow by luck, I stopped fiddling with sort of justice at the right moment. <laughs> at the right moment. <laughs> my advisor in the in my program says, uh, he has two phrases. One is perfect as Emmy of good enough. And if it gets uh, to the point where he has to, he'll say perfect as Emmy of done, which is you <laughs> yeah. never, you, you, perfect is such a nebulous, not real thing to ever hit. All you can do is, is hit where you're at right now and get it to the point where it's good enough. And if you're going to, if you're going to crank out 40 some odd and even more as I'm excited to see how many more you crank out, out you, you perfect can't be achieved. It's just not a real thing. So you're going to know when to stop. And, and, and yet another unpopular view might be, uh, you know, I, I actually think I get better. Every book might be a brag. Most books like, and, don't you get better through repetition? Right. Uh, martial yeah. arts certainly does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and I, I'm sorry, Dylan, I'm going to resist slightly the term crank them out. Like I do write each gotcha. of the books and <laughs> yeah. I think I can say, I don't have a system that uh, I don't have a, every book does not have boy meets girl, boy loves girl, girl is stolen by bandits, has to be avenged, track down the bad guy, kill him in revenge. Mm -hmm. uh, plot line. Um, I have 8 million plot lines and every one of them is really its own thing. And the thing I was going to say about where we were before is uh, Artifact Space was none of those things. Uh, that yeah. book wrote itself. I never had a moment of of doubt. It, it was literally like the ancient Greek views of the muses, you know, like the <laughs> muse entered my head and provided me with a book. That's awesome. <laughs> Yes, yes. Yes. I'm sure it was a, a 40 some odd day flow state. Of just I mean, I want to say cranking out because I know it was an engagement and being present with the writing process and telling the story. It's just when it all appears in your head in the middle of a movie theater, then it becomes a lot easier, I'm sure, to get in touch with the story you're ready to tell. One of the best phone calls I, I was sharing with you guys earlier that I'm in a Sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly writers group with Sebastian DeCastle and 
Evan Winter and Nick Eames and <laughs> oh, what the a best curl. conversation <laughs> I think I've ever participated in. And they, they have it without me sometimes. So I may have missed a few was about <laughs> flow state and what it feels like to be in that flow state and how yep. long it lasts. That's awesome. Yeah. I'll, that sounds like a we'll great crew. I, I'm just trying time. to process yeah, I, that round table right now. So I'm, I'm a little <laughs> silent, but no, I think that's amazing. And it's, it, it speaks volumes sometimes. And it's just like, is at some point, a, a lot of stuff just comes together and the moment just happens. And one of the things that, that one of the things that I found like about your work that I'm very impressed with it, it, it is outside of like publishing, publishing books, but what you could do over on Twitter. And one of the things I really want to make sure yes. we talk about while we have you on the show, it is this series that you've been working on recently on Twitter, your video series called Writing Fighting. And for listeners that don't know, I'm going to try and explain it here. And maybe Christian, you can fill in some blanks for me. But Writing Fighting is the series. It's about two minute long videos that you publish on a fairly frequent basis uh, about focusing on different aspects of different kinds of writing. I know you've, you've covered a lot of like, um, like fighting in armor, fighting with daggers, like fighting from a sheathed sword and unsheathing the sword. And it's just, it's been so much fun watching it for lack of a better word, just like explode on Twitter, just like grow rapidly. And yeah. as someone who's not in that space, who's never done a reenactment before, who's never held a sword before, I, I, I you just do find fencing, Charles. Well, you do yeah, fencing, fencing but I'm talking about holding like a broadsword or unche- a dagger or something. <laughs> like I, I, don't, I don't have any of that stuff. So it's to me, it's like how, like how did writing, like how did writing fighting get started? Like, what was the inspiration behind it? So um, one day, uh, ah, I think now I'm going to do somebody a disservice. I believe it was Peter McLean, English fantasy writer, uh, who put up a really interesting Japanese martial arts. It was Yaido video. Um, Yaido is a Japanese martial art about, wow, it's hard even to describe, about using a sword. It's almost all solo and you use a real sword, or you Mm. use a very accurate reproduction that isn't sharp of a real sword. Okay. Um, And uh, I've done a little Iido, and I love Iido, and he basically said, like, how did he do this, and what's the purpose? Because it's a very complicated move. Mm. So I'm like, well, anyway, I answered his thing, and then I thought about my answer and thought, that was a terrible tweet. No one is ever going to (laughs) understand this. So I went out in the backyard, and uh, and sort of demoed how this would work, at least with a European sword. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, I thought of another answer. And so I demoed that. <laughs> and somewhere in there, I think I got 2,000 views and 150 <laughs> likes. And I, yeah. I'm more of a 15 like kind of tweet, Twitter person. So <laughs> not anymore, not <laughs> I anymore, thought, Christian. <laughs> I, I thought, wow, that, that's interesting. And then what also played into this, frankly, is COVID. Right. Uh, when yeah. I went out in the backyard, it was winter, at least in Toronto. It may have been summer for the rest of you. Um, and <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I hadn't touched a sword. I mean, I do my training exercises, so I guess I had touched a sword. But I hadn't done anything very fun mm-hmm. in 15 months. Mm-hmm. And so, quite honestly, the first week or two was really like, hey, 
I'm in my backyard with a sharp sword doing really complicated, so like really that some of those earlier, early videos, I'm doing the most complicated stuff with a sharp <laughs> where you can hurt yourself just oh, with wow. this out of this scabbard. And it <laughs> so don't really try this good. at home stuff. <laughs> it felt really good to do these complicated bits of my martial art at all, mm. much less for an audience. Yeah, right. Um, and then uh, I think about week two, uh, my friend Aurora, who, when it's not COVID, is my co-instructor in our martial mm -hmm. arts school, was uh, over. And so in masks, we made a video and that got like 3,000 or 4,000 views. I can't even remember it at that <laughs> right. point. I'm like, oh. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like You're onto something. something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and, and then a couple of other authors said, well, how would this work? Like, I'm working up this scene. Mm. How would this work? And that was super fun. I don't know. Uh, That's awesome. Like, I really do mean it to be a service to myself and others. And by myself, I mean, it keeps me entertained and off the streets. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I'm trying to write, do it not for other martial artists, but right. for, for people going like, well, I write daggers. They're real. Wow. You know, like yeah. part of it just is you can read 50 fantasy novels or 50 historical novels and you know, depending on your view of fight scenes, not a lot of people are killed with eating knives. <laughs> and yet, if you yeah. uh, if you read your annals of the Middle Ages, awful lot of people are killed with eating I'm knives. I'm sure you have. <laughs> um, and and uh, yeah, that's awesome. And, and so so just trying to sort of sneak in these little these these little bits. I mean, fun fact. I I love a good fun fact. Fun fact about the Middle Ages. Yes. Uh, we we like to imagine that people then didn't bathe. If people didn't bathe in the Middle Ages, uh, how come so many young people died swimming in the Thames in February? Mm. Um, uh, and it, as, especially since the inquests always say, you know, um, so and so wash uh, uh, seamstress of London died bathing herself, you know, blah, blah, blah. And no, people yeah. went to icy steps and dove into the river in February to be clean. Oh, and wow. every city in Europe had bathhouses that the church was constantly inveighing against because you put 10 teenage boys and 10 teenage girls naked in a pool of water uh, bathing mm. and, you know, who knows what happens. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, long story short, there was a lot of bathing in the Middle Ages. Uh, <laughs> it's really not that hard to find uh, the, the, the bathing. So these things are just these little myths that evolve. Of course, people were dirtier. Right. They didn't have in-house plumbing, but nobody likes to be dirty. Yeah. Right. And what I like about writing fighting is, like you said, you are you are doing it not for experts. You're doing it for writers. And sometimes when you're focusing on, on a subject like drawing a sword from a scabbard, it's like you can draw it and part of the draw, you just ram it into their face and before you draw <laughs> completely. And it's like those kinds of like, like I call them honest moments, but they're like, you know, moments that have are actually happened in part of the technique that you could take into your fantasy story and write just a really cool badass character who who's going to use the blunt end of the sword to smash someone's face and then slash them because that's how they're taking it out of the sword so it's these fun moments that to me again these like honest moments that you're isolating about fighting and we've read we've seen so much fights like lord of the rings oh i shoot you with an arrow and the orc goes flying down the 
downstairs, grabs the arrows, like, oh, I'm dead, and flies off and dies. And it's like, well, <laughs> like, there's some more complications that you could write into that scene that would give yes. it a bit of honesty. And it's those moments that you're highlighting and featuring in this two-minute segment that that I just find so fascinating. Yeah, next week, uh, near and dear to all Dungeons and Dragons players, I'm going to show mm. how long it takes to get uh, into full plate mail. Yes, um, that's all. And uh, I'm looking forward to that one. And then week after next, because this makes for good character writing if you're writing plates, um, mm. I'm going to have a whole segment about uh, what armor you do get into fast. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. if the pirates attack your ship in the middle of the night, you're not getting armed in your full plate armor. That is True. not happening. Right. So, so what what do you look like in a helmet, a breastplate, and a pair of gauntlets? Well, you're pretty mm. well armored, but you have some vulnerabilities. Yeah. And uh, quite honestly, when you're writing fight scenes, it seems to me, vulnerability for your protagonist is super important. Right. If your protagonist yeah. is like a godlike killer who is good at everything and has perfect armor, there's no Boring. tension to a yeah. no, no <laughs> tension to a fight scene. Yeah. And it's very easy to write yourself into that corner. I, I have. And then, you know, you just catch the poor bastard when I'm he sure you write yourself now out. We're, <laughs> now we're back to zero. Right. Yeah. No, that's um, so fascinating. Yeah, I, I just think those moments are so good. And I think a lot of modern authors are embracing more of these ideas to try and bring some ingenuity into their fighting scenes and, and just to to be learning about it from like a historical standpoint from like a combat perspective is is so fascinating uh there's another author that we've talked about recently on the show who's also a big reenactor that we see you interacting with a lot is is john Gwynn, and you know, we <laughs> he, we fans. just read shadow of yeah, the gods and we're too. big fans and yeah, <laughs> dylan and i were trying to think of some more silly questions to ask you <laughs> Well, so, <laughs> so, do you guys know who Kareem Mafus is? No, no. He's an aspiring fantasy writer in the UK. He's a okay. hell of a good guy, and he's friends with both me and John. He okay. he's been putting off his wedding over and over again because of COVID. <laughs> but yeah, I've never met John person to person. But we've done all this stuff right, together yeah, on right. the internet, especially during COVID. Right. So we're supposed to meet at Kareem's wedding in August. <laughs> ah, and, oh, there you go. Um, That's so exciting. <laughs> I, I expect it's either going to be a lo big love fest or we're going to form a shield wall and fight someone. So, I can't. That's can't actually, <laughs> well, there could be a third option, Christian. And the third is you meet at this wedding and you actually get in a disagreement and you challenge each other in single combat. And our question is, if you had to fight John Gwynn, knowing he's a reenactor, what and you won the the shield toss and you got to pick the weapons what would you pick and what's your strategy for beating this guy he seems like a formidable foe <laughs> he does uh, seem very formidable so first of all there's no question about what i'd pick i'd pick okay. sword and shield because i'm a Ooh. chivalrous knight and that's his best classic weapon. oh okay yeah um, you're doing uh, the honorable thing. move <laughs> and yeah. he might he might choose axe and shield in fact i'll mm. bet he would choose axe and shield yeah. and that's also fine um <laughs> Uh, and then uh, he's bigger than me. And I have to tell you that while this does not go with people's belief systems in fantasy, size does matter. And uh, <laughs> he might just push my shield down and kill me, which would be sad because we're friends. Right. Yeah. Um, We'd uh, be upset. We want both of you to keep writing lots of amazing <laughs> novels. So we hope neither of you kills the other one. Well, I'd be upset too, but you've set up this scenario. So right. uh, what I like That's to true. believe would happen is that his sons, who are both my sword students, yes. Uh, would stop the whole thing. 
Oh, the okay. Brothers Gwyn. The brothers I see Gwyn would it. Have to step in. Yeah. Turn his children <laughs> against him for the victory. I like that. <laughs> I think I that's think they'd have to play peacemaker and just uh, you know settle the differences in case because <laughs> got it. You guys got to stay alive, uh, even if we pitted you two against. And I'm. But I'll tell you that if we went head to head on beards, I wouldn't have a chance. <laughs> he yeah, does. He chance. does. But man has like the most magnificent beard in all of fantasy. His beard is magnificent. Oh, but yeah. I got to say, Christian, if you guys won against each other on flow, you've, you've got quite the hairdo and he's bald. So it balances yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> See, it does. I. And we balance out in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's uh, thank you for indulging our our silly question. And we actually have oh Dylan showing off again. His favorite thing to do with guests is show off his flow against Patrick Rothfuss. Well, no, well the beard when beards come up organically, I have to throw this picture up. I wish we sometimes I wish that we were uh, we had video, but uh, yeah, it is a terrible uh, video my, for the. For the kids at home that they can't see yes. the staggering level of beards on display. <laughs> yes. I know. So this is my. <laughs> this is, I showed this to our last guest too, so Charles is all fed up. But it, it, it came up organically. Yeah, this was my attempt. And okay. It's on social media for folks who can look at look at my uh, at Donar Marsh if you want to see this. Um, uh, yes, this was my attempt at growing a Patrick Rothfuss level beard. Mine not. You know, Rothfuss has a very full beard. You're talking about John Gwynn, very John Gwynn, very full beard. I don't think I was able to pull it off. But Christian, what do you, what do you think? Did I do okay? I, I think it looks great. And as a matter of fact, you look like a Greek saint, which is a little worrisome. <laughs> wow. Oh, gosh, Christian, don't <laughs> indulge him too much. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. I do agree, Dylan. It was a good look for you, and hopefully we'll see it come back again one day. And this actually leads oh, yeah. beautifully into my second silly question. I promise this is the last one, but Christian, to have your expertise on the show, I feel like I have to take advantage of your expertise while you're here. Uh-huh. And sometimes, you know, Dylan and I, we do get into disagreements. It happens from time it's to time true. when you when we're we always spend as much out. time together. We always manage to sort it out, but one of these days got to be open to the fact that it, it might not get sorted out and he might you know show that beard picture one too many times and we have to you know i think a great way to settle some of these disagreements would be kind of like a trial back by combat situation yes so i guess one of my questions to you is how how would dylan and i go about getting into medieval fighting how do we get weapons where's a good place to start learning so that we can settle our differences you know on the field yeah uh- so I know you mean this as a joke, but I'm going to give you a straight answer because that's who I am. Uh, yeah. So if you go to the International Armitzare Society website, okay. uh, that's mm-hmm. the IAS, uh, it has a whole uh, video learning section. So you hmm. become a member, there's a very small fee and literally professionals, by which I mean people who make their full-time living as sword masters, hmm. uh, have video learning and also... Uh, ways that you can develop your capability solo and then where you go to the nearest club or actual instructor so you can do more of that. Um, And soup to nuts from just doing what we call sword fit, which is just like getting to swing a sword around and be fitter. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like aerobics with a sword, Mm -hmm. which is, by the way, super fun. I've done boxer fit for for a a while Mm -hmm. and I'm not a boxer. I'll probably never (laughs) enter the ring. But right. it's, it's like a way to get yourself to do exercise, right? Mm-hmm. Buy mm-hmm. an expensive sword, swing yes. it at something, you're yeah. doing exercise. Um, all the way from that up to um, learning to fight in armor and who can make you the armor to fight. 
and what rules you fight under, because believe me, rules matter when you're swinging a four-pound sword. <laughs> yes, um, yes. We want to uh, be chivalrous in our trial by combat. Uh, sure. You not only want to be chivalrous. Not me. I break the rules. <laughs> uh, you really don't. We, we have a saying, we only fight the ones we love. Right. <laughs> that's a great saying. That's, well, that's why Charles and I are asking this question. <laughs> no, but like you don't want to be mad and mm-hmm. you don't want to be yeah. hyper competitive because um, one bad moment and you're sticking your friend under the arm. Uh, anyway, it's, it's a little dangerous. And frankly, it gets mm-hmm. safer every year because our equipment gets better. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still not the safest sport. That being said, compared to paragliding, I think it's like yeah. incredibly safe. Sure. Um, yeah. And, and if you get some exercise <laughs> while doing it, it seems like great exercise. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I would go to the IAS website mm-hmm. because I think everything you want to okay. know is there. But okay. if you just want to like salivate at some swords, mm-hmm. uh, two American companies that deserve their international repu- reputation mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. armsandarmor.com. Arms and uh, armor. And Albion Swords, A L B I O N Swords. And um, if you want to look at the swords I use, uh, there's an Italian company called Malleus Martialis. Hmm. Okay. Um, and they make yeah. fabulous, what I call sport fighting weapons. Mm-hmm. He doesn't make anything yeah. sharp. Um, Albion makes sport fighting weapons, and so does Arms and Armor, and they're very good. Uh, and then uh, both Albion and Arms and Armor make sharps. Mm-hmm. And so just like the Japanese uh, version, Iaido, um, having mm-hmm. a sharp weapon is, and you've seen writing fighting, you learn a lot yeah. just by swinging a sharp weapon or using a sharp mm-hmm. dagger. Mm-hmm. Problem is you really need some training first because frankly, they're weapons and they're yeah. really dangerous. Right. Like you can literally hurt yourself with a sharp sword. Uh, European swords yes. that are double-edged, you swing it at a piece of wood, it bounces back and hits you in your forehead. Oh God. This happens. I think there's a YouTube I'm sure. happening to some poor guy. Oh, no. Oh, like, no. Um, yeah. So it's a thing, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't start with a sharp myself. <laughs> I don't see the need to have a sharp weapon in, in my possession anytime soon. I, I would definitely need I, to learn a few more skills. <laughs> yeah. I don't see any reason for you to have a sharp weapon near me either, Charles. That's, uh, especially <laughs> well, that's not true. near me. <laughs> well, if you want to get involved in the knightly arts really cheaply because you just want to fight Dylan to the death. Yes. I'm um, listening. I'm listening. Dagger, dagger is uh, uh, a knightly art. Um, it, it, it goes right over into the Renaissance. You don't need a lot of equipment. Okay. And, and right now I'm going to tell you how to beat Dylan. I'm listening. Oh, I got no. my pen. <laughs> So as he goes for his dagger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, should he be listening to this or should I mute his his, his headphones <laughs> just so I can get the inside? It's more chivalrous if you let him listen. Okay, that's fair. You're right. All the chivalrous. I try to be. As he reaches right-handed for his dagger, you lean forward mm-hmm. and put your left hand on his right hand so he never gets his dagger out. Ah. And then you draw yours and stab him. Oh, I like that. Okay. Before he even Charles, draws his weapon. This? Charles is taking notes. So, yeah, um, so actually, I... Draw from my right. This actually comes out out of a 16th century manual on how to write a duel. And and the guy actually (laughs) says, like, if you're really afraid of the guy you're fighting, never let him get his sword out of his scabbard. That makes a whole lot of sense. Very chivalrous. (laughs) Yes, very chivalrous indeed. And we asked the question in a kind of silly way, but I think people will genuinely be interested to look into um, the IAS, Arms and Arbor, 
Albion swords. Like I just find that stuff fascinating, and I would I I think our show would benefit from a little duel, Dylan. So <laughs> one of these days I when we're in the same state, we'll Charles. fight each other. Yeah. <laughs> yes. In a chivalrous way, of course, Christian. We want to do honor <laughs> to the combat form. Um. So before I, I'll tell you what, both yeah. of you, yeah. both of you, come camping uh, with us on track. We'll dress oh. you up in medieval clothes. Yes. And yes. You'll, you'll, you'll basically get nine days of immersion and you'll have a sword lesson every day. Oh, gosh, Christian, don't tempt us because we'll do it. <laughs> I will do it. Do tempt us. Let's do it. I'm oh, in. Aurora, my, my friend Aurora, who, by the way, is a fabulous jeweler and does all kinds of amazing yeah. evil stuff. Um, she, uh, she has suggested many times that we should just like charge people a thousand dollars and say, want an immersive medieval experience? A thousand bucks. You pay, we'll provide the clothes. At the end, you'll know how to do all this medieval stuff and also swing the sword. <laughs> well, we will you know, be your first clients and your guinea yes. pigs. So uh, to, to quote the, the famous words, I'll buy that. <laughs> the, the phrase we've been tossing around for a while. So yeah. I'm so excited. <laughs> if I come out of that without Charles murdering me, I think yes. it's going to be if we are allowed an incredible to... experience. Yeah, we'll Don't like... give him anything sharp. Don't give him anything <laughs> Did sharp. Did you guys say that you climbed Mount Doom in New Zealand? We did yes. climb Mount Doom yes. in New Zealand. Mount, that was an we're going to butcher the name. Mount Nagarubo. I, I don't think I don't think Charles is going to murder you. I really don't. <laughs> he had his chance. No, he had his no. chance to push me down. And and Dylan, you. you're, you're you're the athlete, so I'm actually kind of concerned. I'm hoping that my reach, I'm a decent a bit taller than Dylan. I'm hoping that my reach yeah. will help me. Uh, but Christian, we'll have to, you know, I'll have to bring you on as like my coach or my consultant, and we'll have to meet privately and um, study Dylan's study Dylan's form and devise ways to beat him. But yeah, we can do this, and <laughs> then we'll I have form. <laughs> I, I have to say that if he's good at tennis, he may have some huge advantages. He's very so, good, so yeah. I am so not athletic. You might want to just get him like when his back is turned. I think that's the move. I I honestly think if he draws the scab, if he draws out of the scabbard, I think I'm going to be in trouble. So, (laughs) (laughs) but I'll dance around a lot. The footwork. This is so awesome. I feel like Charles is too nice. (laughs) He's too kind. He would not actually take me uh, when I'm not like he would not. Christian's advice is good. I think if I'm not winning in the first 10 seconds, then I'm probably not going to win after that. So. So I'm going to try my best, but that is so much fun. And I could talk about that. I could speculate on that all day, but I do want to bring it back to artifact spaces coming out. And as we're wrapping up the show, I do want to announce that we have on the schedule, we will be returning with Christian Cameron after the book is released, maybe two weeks after it's released, give everyone some time to read it. And we're going to come back for a full spoilers book discussion of artifact space. And we are super excited to have you back on for that, Christian. He's been so generous with his time and knowledge, the both best. about writing and combat. I, I, I took a lot of great notes, but that is something that we are going to do in the very near future. And I guess the last question I want to make sure wait, wait, I ask. I oh, please. Yes. I, I'm going to yeah, up the answer for up. you guys because I've enjoyed this so much. Oh, boy. Uh, so, okay. uh, when you have me back on, uh, the hardcover will be out by then. Mm. And I will give away a hardcover. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, Yes. show we'll have to work out exactly how but um and books is publishing 300 copies in hardcover and i'll give one away so you so yes uh, so when you have me Thank back you. on for the uh spoilers edition mm-hmm. um uh do you, we'll we'll cook up a way that somebody listening can win a copy that is sure. so generous christian it's, it's so much fun and, and that will be yet another reason to tune in guys because 
I don't know. It's just it's been such a great experience. We talked already for, like before this camera turned on. We talked for like almost two hours with Christian, and we could easily talk for longer. But we all have lives to live and families to on get back to. <laughs> on the camping trip, on the camping trip, we'll talk camping. All yes, about all yes. This. We will talk more about the camping trip too. But artifact space coming out soon. Before we go, the one last question that I wanted to ask is: What can like as we're you know. This is going to come out, Artifact Space, June 24th. We're going to do a book discussion and giveaway just a few weeks after that. What can readers expect from Artifact Space? Well, Artifact Space is like three books in one. So at one level, it's a Mm -hmm. mystery of a 100,000-year-old genocide. Uh, Mm -hmm. At a second level, it's a coming-of-age story about a young person trying to turn her life around from very unentitled beginnings. Yeah. Uh, and the third level is um, the space opera level. It's an adventure yeah. story. And, uh, and the adventure is about trying to trade and travel mm-hmm. in a pretty carefully constructed, if I dare say so, uh, <laughs> future where humanity the earth is almost dead. Humanity has had to expand into the stars and nothing mm. but these great ships keeps it together. And, you know, we already know anybody who looks at the internet, how fast we can grow apart. Mm. And I tried to imagine, yeah. and I think a lot of it was a reaction to American politics and the internet's role in that, you know, how right. vital it would be to have something trying to keep humanity together when communication is slower than the speed of light. And there's mm. these, you know, planets in space 20,000 30,000 light years apart how how do they stay in in communication and and what does that mean about humanity and what humanity is hmm. wow. wow that yeah it's a lot to think about like like Dylan also, there's mentioned. Some, oh, go ahead. also there's some sword fights just so. <laughs> Sword fights are always going to be good. (laughs) Coming from the mind behind writing fighting, you know you're in for some action. And like Dylan and I have said already on the show, we're about 15% in and we're loving it. And it sounds like the story is just beginning and there's a lot more that we are going to get through. And uh, I'm super excited for that. I'll tell you and all potential readers the truth. Mm. I am from a generation where we thought opening with a slow burn was the way to open a book. Mm. I, I just, you know, I understand the instant action approach mm. and i sometimes like it i'm not downing it mm-hmm. but i love give me 50 pages of world building mm. i mean not just straight exposition it's got to have character right but i well, like yeah i like to swim into a book mm-hmm. and so i have written a book that you swim into that's uh, fantastic you know you're 15 in you probably haven't come to the first yeah we are place. waiting in so guys. can i well what i want to say though christian is i've i've said on here a lot of times that I'm not a huge fan of like world building for world building's sake and something that makes me love artifact space. And I'm, I basically have read about that 50 pages a little bit more so far. And you're saying, Oh, 50 pages of world building. It's like, yes, you're world building, but you're world building from a place where you're so grounded in Umbaro's character and her trying to understand what's going on around her and her history in this world and in this system, as I feel like you'd like, like to think of it, is like it, that it doesn't, and it's something we've talked about with John Gwynn's work and why we, we love John Gwynn's work so much too, is like the passion for the world is amazing. It's such an incredible thing to have, but never losing track of 
character and whose story you're telling. That's something that I see you doing so well and what has me so excited about reading the rest of Artifacts. Thank you, Dylan, because that is literally what I'm trying to do. <laughs> you're doing I'm it. I'm nodding you're while you're it. saying this. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah, thanks, man. Yeah. I, I, I deeply appreciate that. That Of course. I hope the rest of it fits what I'm trying to do as well as what you're saying. Well, I'm doing it. We we have good confidence and we're looking forward to the rest and we will talk about it in great detail, I'm sure, if this conversation is any indicator uh, once we've read the full thing for our spoiler discussion. So, um, guys, check out Christian Cameron, uh, christiancameronauthor.com. Check him out on Twitter. It's Fokion1, P-H-O-K-I-O-N with a number one. And we'll put all these links uh, in the description as well. But check out- Anywhere else, Christian? Yeah, anywhere else. Anything else you want to say? I know you got a lot of books coming out as well. I have a Facebook author page, uh, Mm -hmm. which I I post stuff to. I'll be honest, I try to put different material on each of my social media, not the yeah. same thing repeated. Mm-hmm. Um, we, sorry, you guys, you, you re- listeners missed the long how to conduct social media <laughs> conversation. <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah, we it was very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, uh, so I, I have a Facebook authors page that is also, I believe, Christian G. Cameron author on Facebook. Um, and uh, that's really it. I have an Instagram feed but my instagram feed is literally stream of consciousness there's a lot of role-playing games and dungeons and dragons Mm. and occasionally a piece of armor and it's really like i'm a real person and this is what interests me it's not so much like advertising and you should buy my books that's what we love about you as a as a guest as a person as a social media presence is it's just all the facets of christian and even miles cameron in there uh that (laughs) we get to see yeah but but hey before you get off the air the last thing i want to say is you guys suggested this and now i want you to make it happen i want you guys to run a dungeons and dragons game where where uh sebastian de castle plays a rogue uh i'll play a a paladin uh uh i think evan winter gets to choose whatever he wants to 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 play and yes i feel like nick eames should be a bard but, you know, if he wants to be a fighter or whatever, like, I, I just, I feel like yes. you guys have to do this. Oh, my gosh. We're, I have my hands on my head, like, trying to process what I'm hearing, Christian, because we would love that. I mean, we've... And, and then if you can get John Gwynn, in addition, he's <laughs> always been a Canadian writer, to be a fighter. Like, I uh, see him as a fighter cleric or maybe a hmm. dwarf fighter. Am Ooh, I wrong? Multi-class I could there. see that. Yeah. I could see that. Uh, I, I feel like we'd have a powerful party and also oh, oh yes well the, the banter would be epic. there's a lot of great voices uh, in, incredible in yeah. that table for certain we will make it we will find a way to make it happen we'll be in touch a way to frame it that you know we we can make it a lot of fun I, you guys would be totally awesome with that we would happily be anything we can do even to just be a fly on the wall and witness it <laughs> would be yeah. would be appreciated <laughs> oh my gosh christian this has been like so much fun thank you so yes. much for your time and for your knowledge and uh for your support it, it means a lot to us we feel like this is a big moment for our show having you on just like having someone that we've been familiar with since before the show ever aired and to just be super interested in your work both like in your writing and then just your your presence as a human being on social yeah. media we're just super thrilled to have gotten the opportunity to spend this wonderful sunday morning now sunday afternoon with you 
Well, Charles and Dylan, uh, thank you. And, you know, the feeling's mutual. Uh, you Again, mm -hmm. we've already talked about this, but I think writing is a team sport. Mm -hmm. And um, in as much yeah. as I don't exist without readers and people who promote reading, you are now part of my team. Oh, or as awesome. John oh, said, part of, part of my shield wall. Oh, uh, um, yes. And uh, like... It's an honor. No, but it's a yeah. different world. It's yeah. not my yeah. dad's world. You know, I'm not a... I'm not sitting mm -hmm. in an attic writing and firing it off never to be seen again. Mm -hmm. um, I live in a constant state of interacting with readers mm -hmm. and uh, you guys help with that. And without people <laughs> doing this, anyway, it all gets very weird. Trying to just self-promote with no support yeah. from right. community just strikes me as like impossibly weird. Yeah. So, yeah. so thank well, you. I, no. Like literally cannot do it without you guys. It's the oh, the pleasure. It, it means so much to hear so you say grateful. that. It's yeah. it's it's our pleasure. It's our privilege to be able to talk to you. You know, we think like you know you're 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 preaching what we've said. It's a community, and it's yeah. just so much fun to be a part of it. And we do it because we love talking about fantasy books and science fiction books, and we're just enthusiasts. So to have yes. support and from someone who's contributing as much to the community as you have, it, it means a lot. Mm -hmm. And Christian, we will, uh, you have two teammates for it. Yeah. We have two teammates yes. for this whole thing. We'll hold and shields now, by you. For uh, we will hold you. I can't guarantee right now that we'll hold the shield. You'll have to teach us how. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to teach us better how to actually hold the shield uh, physically, but figuratively we'll do whatever we can. Yeah. And so of course, John Gwynn will be learn. teaching shield use. Uh, Evan Winter yes. will be on tactics. Oh, there we okay. go. Sebastian DeCastle will cover basic footwork and, and fencing technique. Um, yes. I, I see a whole future. <laughs> I okay. see. Yes. Well, we, we will we support you in every way possible. Yes. So, guys, check out Christian Cameron's I'll work. Tennis. Dylan was going to, yeah, <laughs> Dylan will teach tennis. I'll do a brief marketing background so they can life. go off and promote themselves. It'll be great. They'll get the full package. <laughs> they'll they'll be living their best lives. And, that's uh, like a future to me. That's exactly Thank right. Thank, Thank you so much, Christian. Artifact Space, June 24th. Check it out. Christian Cameron, guys, we have to cut it off. Or we'll just talk all day long. <laughs> Christian, thank you so much. We're going to call it here, everybody. Thank you for listening. And as always, go forth and conquer, friends.